Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Sense and Signal podcast. I'm your one of your co-hosts, Daniel Tarker, flying solo again with you today, and we're going to be talking about leadership and sense making in this episode, and celebrating the America's most popular holiday, Halloween. Yes. All Hallows' Eve, when the witches and ghouls and vampires and ghosts all come out to play and kids go begging for food, or at least they used to when I was growing up, uh, from house to house. Don't see that so much anymore, unfortunately, uh, because we are a low-trust culture now, so we don't celebrate Easter. I mean, not Easter either, but uh, Halloween as much as we used to. So today we are going to talk about several Halloween-themed aspects of leadership. Uh, through different means. Uh, one, I'm gonna, first, I'm going to do a review of the Fall of the House of Usher, a series that's on Netflix. Um, we'll be looking at that through a leadership and sense-making lens. And then we'll also be, I'll be telling you some ghost stories. Uh, one about a haunting on the Amtrak uh, railroad tracks uh, by a, a, a sad, sad story about a secretary who's doing that. And then we're going we're gonna to talk about presidential leadership and a ghost story with featuring Lyndon B. Johnson. Um, and then I got another story that uh, was shared with me through a phone call, a voice message somebody left for me on, on the phone. Um, and it's, I call, I'm calling it the succubus leadership consultant. That's, that's, that's what it's about. Uh, the demon succubus has come to this organization to consult uh, with them. And uh, it's a harrowing story, I'm sure. And we'll listen to that story together. And then finally, I'm going to conclude with a piece called The CEO and the Egregore. Uh, and that is an interesting one because we did an interview with somebody a couple months ago who um, had been doing this investigation and told us all about this egregore and the CEO who's involved in the occult. And he asked us afterwards not to air a broadcast that episode. And so we've complied. But I figured since it was the Halloween season, I should share at least my summary of that episode with you. So um, I hope you enjoy. And uh, we're going to go ahead and dive right on in with the content of this leadership and sense-making Halloween episode. Let the festivities begin. Uh, and let's begin these festivities with a review of the uh, Netflix series, The Fall of the House of Usher. Now, I'm kind of late to this party. I recognize that. The series has been out for a a couple weeks now, I believe. And uh, there have been plenty of reviews posted online about uh, this this adaptation of the Edgar Allan Poe short story, The Fall of the House of Usher. Uh, But sometimes, you know, when the mask of the Red Death shows up, it's kind of good to be late to a party. So this is a, a party I guess I can be late to. And I think I'm going to, you know, I think the important thing is that I'm going to talk about this story through the lens of leadership and sense-making, because there's a lot to learn from this tragic story of uh, Roderick uh, Usher and his uh, sister Madeline and their business venture together. Um, So let's let's go ahead and um, dive in. So this series is one of Mike Flanagan's um, works, and he's been doing these uh, these Halloween horror-themed uh, series for Netflix for a few years now. The, the Hill House is one of them, and there's been uh, several others. Um, and it, I think I find all of them to be really well done. I've enjoyed all of them. Uh, he did the Turn of the Screw to or a version of the Turn of the Screw a few years ago, and I, I thought all of them have been excellent. And this one is no exception. Highly recommend watching it. That's the the headline here. Uh, And I'll get into more detail about why as we go through this review, but definitely uh, one of his best in his au revoir of uh, Halloween horror uh, miniseries for Netflix. And I hear this might be his last one, and I can understand that after a couple years of doing this, that he might be tired of uh, cranking these out year after year, and I could see where it could get creatively stifling, so totally understand that. Um, But I did find that this one was really well done. So it sticks pretty close to the source material as far as the fall of the House of Usher. We have two characters um, that we're following, Roderick uh, Usher, uh, played by Bruce Greenwood, who does an Emmy-deserving performance in this. I cannot uh, praise his performance enough. Um, And he's also joined by his sister, Madeline, who's played by uh, Mary McDonald. Um, And they are... they. 
follow the the trajectory of the two characters from the short story um and their strange relationship and um the tragedy that befalls the house and the family uh because of that um and she also it should be noted you know helps his rise uh to success and you know minor spoiler spoiler alert may contribute to his uh downfall so in many ways uh, this is also a faustian faustian tale uh they make a, a, a faustian uh, uh deal with the devil as it were you could consider it a raven the devil or a dark-haired uh bar uh, bartender uh in um and I don't even sure where they're living, but in the downtown area of this fictional town that they're inhabiting. And that character is played by uh, Carla, Carla Gugio, and she does a fantastic job. Actually, I think her and Greenwood really make that uh, episode, though that series. Um, there's a good chemistry between them, and she's uh, she, when she offers them the deal, it's, it's very it's very compelling. And they fall for it. They they fall for this devil's bargain uh, that she she offers them that she's going to guarantee their success and their a continued upward mobility in exchange for something special, which I'm not going to reveal because that would be too much of a spoiler. Um, and I think age plays a crucial role in this Faustian bargain. They're too young, you know. Roderick and uh, Madeline are way too young when they are offered this. Uh, bargain to really understand the consequences of what they're agreeing to. He jumps on it immediately. Uh, Roderick does, and he doesn't even question it. And so a couple leadership lessons, uh, from that, uh, Faustian bargain there. You, if you're too young to be able to look ahead and see what's to come, you might not want to, uh, jump into a bargain like that because you don't know what could possibly happen between now and 20, 30, 50 years down the line that might make you regret that agreement that you've made. And, you know, another pro tip, another pro tip is that if somebody offers you a deal that's too good to be true, like unlimited success, and they, they know that you have just murdered somebody, they, they confront you and they say, you know, I know you murdered somebody like 10 minutes ago. It might be a clue, it might be a clear signal that they have supernatural powers and that they might be the devil and that you might not want to get into a bargain with them because it's probably probably not going to turn out well for you. So a couple pro tips that we've learned about leadership through this series already. Um, yes, and now I think one of the best parts of the show is the... Uh, that it is kind of like an anthology too. Uh, we have this overarching th uh, story around the Usher family and their downfall, but uh, strung together throughout the eight episode series are these short stories based on um, Poe's work and some of them famous like uh, the Telltale Heart and the, the Mask of the Red Death and some of them not as famous like the Gold Bug. But each child, each one of Roderick's child children, uh, has a has a their own episode, and they're all based on uh, one of Poe's tales, like I just said. And I will say, you know, Roderick's gotten around; he's traveled all over the place and had uh, relationships with all kinds of different women. So he has a whole menagerie of uh, children for the writers to torture and kill uh, using one of uh, Edgar Allan Poe's stories. And I'll say each of the actors does a magnificent job uh, when it's their episode, uh, really carrying that 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 uh, piece of the, the series. And I'll say, personally, I thought The Telltale Heart was my favorite of um, that, of, of, the, of the stories. Um, but ultimately, Usher, Usher's story, like many of the stories of uh, tragic heroes like him, are, are, are is a leadership morality tale. Um, and I will say that at times it can get a little too preachy. It almost went over the line for me a few times because at the center of this is his family business. Uh, the Usher family runs a, a pharmaceutical company and it's become basically the family business. And uh, there's a lot to 
a lot of hay made about the pharmaceutical industry and the opioid epidemic for good reason, because that is a true thing uh, that's happening in this country. And uh, we see people dying in the streets every day from the opioid epidemic. And it's a series that's trying to call attention to that. And uh, in this series, Usher is at the center. He's the one who's profited and made millions for him and his family off the death of uh, uh children and people who have died from uh, these opioid uh, overdoses um and so he he you know he definitely and his family profits from all of that but at the same time he is somewhat sympathetic at times he's very charismatic and i think that does make him a tragic hero he's suffering from a fatal flaw like a true uh, tragic hero does and in this case that is greed and ambition you know these classic uh, flaws that we see in a lot of different uh, characters uh throughout literature and film and i would say if you were to give roderick a performance review uh I would think that you'd want to use the dark triad traits to to frame um, uh, the performance review. So let's let's try that with Roderick for a second. So one is he narcissistic? Click dink. Yes, he is narcissistic uh, because he buries his boss, his former boss, in a wall and thinks he's going to get away with it. Is he Machiavellian? Check. He's Machiavellian. He buries his former boss inside a wall. Uh, is he psychotic? Mm, check. He buries his former boss inside a wall. Is he sadistic? Check. He buries his former boss inside a wall. So, I mean, we're actually talking dark uh, quadrad stuff here with Roderick Usher. Um, and as a consequence, you know, I won't even say as a consequence, maybe as a genetic uh, trait, but or storytelling contrivance he has a heart condition which uh, is impairing his cognitive abilities and causing him to hallucinate and i think you know this allows the storytellers to have him project visions out onto the world that are really reflecting a lot of the guilt that he's carrying around the damage that he has done to his family uh, and the world around him uh, in his case, it's, it's you know it's very Lady Macbeth like, uh, where she's scrubbing the red dot off her hand, go away spot, go away spot, or whatever that line is. And in his case, it's people falling from the sky, raining down from the sky as he looks out his office uh, boardroom window and he sees the bodies of all the dead people who have died from opioid op overdoses raining down from the sky. Um, and I think all great tragedies are like this. I mean, they they all center around a potentially noble hero who suffers from a fatal flaw, and that is Roderick Rush, uh, Roderick Usher. And like Hamlet with his indecisiveness, or Othello with his jealousy, the the theme of you know he's being pulled down and he's you know meeting his end at the end of that series due to his uh ambition and greed uh comes through really clearly and one character that helps accentuate that is uh his henchman the, the character of his henchman arthur pym and arthur pym is played by mark hamill i've seen some people say or heard some people say that they didn't like mark's performance i thought mark hamill did a great job i didn't even realize it was mark hamill until i saw another video review that said hey that's mark hamill so then i was like oh that's mark hamill weird i didn't recognize him but he did a really great job i thought um, and I think one of the things that he adds, not necessarily his performance, but the character adds to the piece is a counterpoint to Roderick Usher. And I think it also brings in the age factor too of the Faustian that impacts the Faustian deals being offered. So, um, Pym is also offered a Faustian deal by the Raven. Um, and he turns it down. He says, no, I don't want it. I'm willing to pay the consequences for what I have done. And he's done a lot of bad, bad stuff, uh, according to the series. And we see some of it in the series, too, as he goes around trying to fix different things for the Usher family. Um, so, so you have that piece. He, and he rejects it. And I think it's because of age. When Roderick Usher and Madeline Usher accept the Faustian deal, they're very young. They're only in their 20s, and they're really looking to, to rise to the top and climb their way up to the corporate ladder, right? Um, 
And so they're not seeing the future ahead of them outside of their own narcissistic uh, projections of themselves as CEO and COO in the future for this pharmaceutical company. Um, so of course they jump right on that Faustian deal with the devil or the raven. But when uh, Pim gets offered it, he turns it down. He declines, and it's because he's older and he has less time. He has not. He doesn't have as much to look forward to, and the cost would probably be really great to him if he were to lose somebody that he loved. Uh, you know, just to uh, avoid prison and the time he'd serve for all the terrible things he's done for the um, the Usher family. So I think. I think that was an interesting counterpoint. And so overall, I think Flanagan's take on the uh, how, Fall of the House of Usher, uh, excellent work. I think it has a lot of leadership uh, lessons in it. Again, it's a tragic uh, hero's journey story or tragic tragedy in the true sense of the word, whereas the hero suffers from a fatal flaw and he and everyone around him suffers uh, because of that. In this case, the fatal flaw is greed and ambition and willing to sacrifice everything uh for wealth and power uh a truly american story in a sense and um i think flanagan does it justice i'll give it five and a half stars and highly recommend that you uh go watch that eight episode series so now i want to turn to a ghost story for this halloween sense and signal episode so I was told this story uh, over this past week um, when I went on a trip uh, down to southern, down to some a town in southern Washington. I'm not going to name the town because I don't want to bring them any negative attention. It's Kelso. Um, and so I went down to southern uh, Washington for this conference and it was a good trip uh, for the most part. I took the train down and so, and the, which that plays a key part in this ghost story is that train. And one thing I want to talk about before I get to the train is uh, Red Lobster Restaurant. And you're not going to see the connection here right away, but you will eventually. So I go to my hotel. I'm waiting for the conference. And I need to get some dinner. And normally I would go to a local restaurant, get some local food, local cuisine, really understand the culture of the place that I'm, eating, that I'm staying in and get to know the town. But I was tired. There was a Red Lobster right next door. You know, I said, okay, I'll go there. And I've been to Red Lobster maybe two times before in my life. Don't have memorable experiences of either time. My wife has a good good memory of one instance years ago, but you know, she was pregnant when she, when we went, and so she was really hungry. <laughs> so maybe that's informing her uh, her memory of that first uh, Red Lobster experience. But the last two times I've gone, it hasn't been very good, and, and this time was. was Totally true. So I go in, I order some fish and chips and some clam chowder. I'm eating it. Um, and it's kind of mediocre, mediocre food at best. And my wait, my, the waiter, waitress work, uh, serving me, it's clear that she's been told to upsell everybody. I can hear the other waiters and waitresses ups, upselling people all over the place. And I'm not doing it, right? I'm just having my, my simple fish and chips and chowder and, and a beer. And I'm sure she's angry, not angry, but disappointed in, in, um, my, uh, unambitious ordering, uh, preferences. And, you know, uh, she showed it. It was very clear to me that she, she was disappointed in having me as a, as a customer. So that was a bad dining experience, and it was a lesson learned that just go to a local place, don't go to a chain place when you go to a new town for a conference or something like that. Find something authentic and local. And I ended up doing that later in the trip, and that's where I picked up the ghost story. So uh, after my conference, I go to uh, the train station, the Amtrak train station, and I walk in and they tell me the bus is going to uh, the train's going to be a couple hours late and i knew that from my phone they alerted me on my phone like they do these days and i just want to double check and you know at this point i was disappointed but you know at the same time post covid like many people i just go you know it is what it is so i let it go i knew there was a pub down the street i had seen so i was like i'm just going to go there have a sandwich and a beer and enjoy myself uh, and, and make the best of this situation. So I go down there. It's called the Station Pub. And I walk in. And, you know, it's a local little dive pub. And I mean real dive pub. And it's great. All the people are friendly. I talk to the wait, uh, the bartender. And she's like, 
uh, what can I get for you? And I'm like, oh, do you have any amber? And she's like, I'm not sure if we have any amber. And somebody across the bar is like, oh, yeah, you do have this new local pilsner that's uh, from the brewery down the street. It's kind of like an ambery pilsner. And she's like, do you want that? And I'm like, sure, I'll have that. And then she goes to get me the beer. And then somebody at the bar, this uh, kind of bubbly blonde lady is like, hey, do you want a sandwich? I, I'm, we have a great chicken sandwich tonight. And I think she's the owner of the place or one of the owners. And she's like, I made a great sauce for that chicken sandwich. You should really try it. And I'm like, you know what? Yeah, I will try that sauce. I will try that chicken sandwich. So I order that. And I'm eating my sandwich and I'm enjoying myself and I'm drinking my beer. It's a wonderful time. And then this old man sitting next to me and he says, hey, are you coming or going? And I'm like, well, I'm hoping that I'm going. I hope the train comes soon. And he's like, ah, it's uh, the northbound train is always late. Don't, you know, I'm a volunteer over there. It happens all the time. I'm like, oh, really? you're a volunteer over at the Amtrak station he's like yep I sure am uh, I've been doing it for years and I remember when he said that that when I walked up to the ticket stand at the Amtrak there was a bunch of pictures of these older folks who were volunteers they were listed as volunteers and I was like oh these retirees must be just volunteering at the Amtrak station and he was like and I asked him about that and he said, yeah, it's just like that here and in, uh, up in Olympia too, that's all volunteer run. And I'm like, wow, that is really fascinating. And so um, I asked him the, mo the next logical question, why? Why are you volunteering at this Amtrak station? And at first he demurs about it. He's like, well, you know, it's just something to do. It's four hours a week, it keeps me occupied. And then his wife chimes in and she says, no, no, no. He's going there to see the ghost on the Amtrak tracks. And I'm, thinking, I'm like, what? Now that caught my attention. The ghost on the Amtrak tracks? What's that? You know, I could clearly tell that he doesn't want to talk about this ghost story, but his wife sure does. And she's like, tell him, tell him about the ghost. It's actually the ghost of his secretary. That's what she says. It's the ghost of his old secretary. And I'm like, what? What are you talking about? And, she, and he's, he starts to share the story. So I'll try to summarize it for you as best I can. So he had this secretary he had, he had hired years and years ago. And I would have, you know, this guy is probably in his 80s now. Um, so we're probably talking maybe 50 years ago that he had this secretary. And he said he was running an accounting business. And she started off really strong, really on top of everything. Um, but over the years, her work just declined. And she started making lots of mistakes. And he'd give her warnings about those mistakes uh, and then one day she made a pretty significant mistake that uh, on a client's bill or some some documentation that uh, could have gotten them in a lot of trouble and he pulled her aside and said you know uh, you make one more mistake I, I've got to let you go I can't I can't continue I've given you warnings but uh, we cannot continue having these mistakes and you know, she left and his wife, his wife chimes in again and says, yeah, that, that really set her off. That really set that that poor woman off. And I could tell he felt a little guilty about this. And it was kind of awful that his wife was, you know, shaming him in front of me in this nice little bar that we're uh, having drinks at. But that's the story. And so uh, I asked him, you know, well, what happened with the secretary? And he said, you know, the next day she didn't show up for work. Um, I was like, all right, I'm going to fire her. This is it. Uh, we have important, some important work to get done today. She hasn't shown up. So um, I'm in my mind like, all right, that's it. We're done. We're firing her now. Then I get a call from the sheriff's office and it turns out she had gotten inebriated the night before and walked out onto the tracks and collapsed there. And at some point, a train ran right over her. And it was not a sight to behold, according to the sheriff. Man, talk about, you could have heard a pin drop in that bar. Like no one was expecting something as horrific as that, right? And so I, I'm, I'm just stunned and I, I'm drinking my beer. And, the, and then the wife says, now tell, now tell them about trying to contact the family. Because when you're in a leadership position, you're wor working with people, Often when a tragedy happens like this, it also becomes incumbent upon you to work with the family. And in this case, you know, work with the family to get the belongings to them and help them out with anything they might need. But in this case, it was really difficult because apparently the woman was very estranged from her family and it took the, this, uh, this old guy and the sheriff 
uh, about a week or so to even find uh, a contact with her brother. And when he contacted her brother, he said, it was tragic. It made so much about who she was click together uh, because he said that she was estranged from the family because she didn't feel she was fully supported by them when she was brutally attacked while living in Los Angeles. And he said the attack was, was pretty brutal. It left her in the hospital. And uh, he felt like the family tried to support her, but she never felt that they had done enough. And so that's what we know about her her past. And the the old man and the wife reflected on, you know, how how trauma is not tattooed on your body, right? Trauma is expressed through behavior. You can't just look at somebody and see their trauma, but often their behavior and their actions start to give you clues as to uh, the problems that they're going through. And, and, you know, the old man said she had displayed many, many a clue, you know, that she often had this sweet aroma around her associate that he knew was uh, coming through her pores due to her alcoholism. Um, and the, 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 the grading of the work that she was doing was also a sign. And, you know, he really didn't know what to do at the time. Um, if he had to do it over again, he he said he certainly would. He would have helped her get into Alcoholics Anonymous and maybe tried to get her therapy. But at the time, he he just didn't know any better. And so um, his wife chimed in one last time and said, and that's why he goes to the the railroad station. That's why he volunteers there, because he wants to see that ghost. Because that's the legend, that she she comes back as a ghost every night. And sometimes when the southbound train is passing through, the one that hit her, you can sometimes hear her scream into the night like a banshee. And so um, I took all that in and was like, that was more than I thought I was going to get when I walked into this bar 15 minutes ago. So they got up and they said their goodbyes and I finished my beer and my chicken sandwich and I went back to the Amtrak station, of course, the, the the volunteer there said, yeah, the, the train is still late, so uh, you're going to have to hang out a while longer. I was fine with that. It is what it is, right? So I go back out on the platform, sit down and watch the, the sun setting in, in the distance. And a tr southbound train comes rolling by. And uh, I do think I hear something as it passes, like this screeching, grinding, squealing something ah, but it was probably just a train it was probably nothing and it's probably just a just a local legend uh that people uh tell themselves to make them feel or derive some meaning about the tragic experience that uh happened to them and i think this is a you know definitely a good lesson in um you know, when you're leading people that they're when they're not performing as well as they should, that's often an expression of something else that's going on. And then, yeah, you know, when you're a supervisor or you're in a leadership position, you can't always be, you can't be everybody's therapist. You have to have boundaries and stuff like that as well. Um, and there's only, there's a limit to what you can do, but I think we also need to be, remember, be empathetic. Uh, you know, sometimes have tough conversations with people who are you're working with, um, try to connect them to the support uh, systems that they need. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, and, and just be be sensitive to the fact that often these uh, problematic behaviors that surface at work, you know, are the result can be the result of trauma from the past. So that's that Halloween ghost story for uh, this segment of the Sense of Signal podcast. Next, we are going to go and talk about Lyndon B. Johnson and his, his encounter with a spirit from the other side. So Lyndon B. Johnson was a former president of ours. Back in the 1960s, he inherited the White House after uh, John F. Kennedy was assassinated and um, was there for a lot in the presidency, presidential Oval Office chair for a lot of the Vietnam War, which was a very unpopular war. And so I was told this story 
by a friend who was told by another friend and was passed down from another friend whose father was um, a part of the Secret Service way, way back in the 60s. And so this is a story that's traveled along a chain. So you have to take everything uh, with the grain of salt when it comes to you uh, that way. But I do think the story, what I think why, what it can speak to as far as leadership skills is a recognition that we are not in control of our legacy as leaders. When you're in a leadership position, there are often things that arise uh, that, you know, are beyond your control. And as much as you want to try and control the narrative around your, your participation in this complex world, uh, sometimes you're not. Uh, and you can't be. So it's 1973, it's evening, and um, Lyndon B. Johnson is in his his office, and he's just come back from uh, a football game uh, at the University of Texas. His voice is kind of hoarse because he's been cheering on his team. And, you know, he's sitting in his office reading the newspaper about how Richard uh, Milhouse Nixon uh, the president that succeeded him is uh, making a peace deal in Vietnam is going to end the war. And he's listening, um, while he's reading this, he's listening to Simon and Garfunkel's A Bridge Over Troubled Water. And you might not think this is like Lyndon B. Johnson listening to Simon and Garfunkel. Well, apparently the song spoke to his sense of isolation um, and uh, alienation from the world after losing the election to uh, Nixon and feeling like he had been saddled with this negative legacy around Vietnam, despite the fact that he had done so many other good things. Um, the song seemed to appeal to him. And so he's sitting there listening to the music, reading the newspaper, and he hears a, uh, he hears some sounds in the next room, like a shuffling around, maybe a bumping, a dragging of a foot, weird noise. And he knew, uh, his, his wife was, um in bed and he knew that the secret service person wouldn't be rumbling around like that so he took a drag of a cigarette and decided that he was he was going to go in and investigate and you know he's tired he's tired he's had a couple heart attacks at this point and his doctors have told him Lyndon, if you don't if you don't stop smoking you're gonna die you're gonna drop dead you know and he he Instead of listening to his doctor's advice, he kept smoking. He, he had started putting on more weight. He was not a healthy guy. And, you know, he often said that the Johnson men only lived to 65. And he was 64 at the time. So he opens the door uh, from his uh, office and goes out into this den area. And there's a fire going. It's crackling. And he knows his wife didn't set the fire. And the, the secure, uh, Secret Service would not do it. So that's a mystery to him. And he sees this tall, angular figure uh, standing by the fire. And it's a very lanky presence, uh, frame, physical frame. And uh, he knows it's not the Secret Service, and it certainly isn't Lady Bird Johnson. So he calls out in his hoarse voice, Who's there? And the figure turns toward him. And Johnson could have collapsed right there when he saw who the figure was. There, there was no mistaking it. The gaunt face, the chiseled looks. It was, it was Abraham Lincoln. It was the ghost of Abraham Lincoln. Uh, and you could even see parts of his skull that had been blown off by the bullet that John Wilkes Booth had fired at him and um, at the Ford Theater almost 100 years before. And Johnson just freezes. His, his blood starts running cold with fear. And the figure says to him, it steps forward into the light even more. So you could start to see the, more of the chiseled face and the beard. And he says to Johnson, there's nothing you can do. There's nothing you can do in his gravelly voice. You can never have control of what's to come. And Johnson clenched his fist. Maybe not like this, but maybe he held it by his side. But he clenched his fist. And he said, it's not fair. And his voice was shaken. The only thing I'm known for is being like this architect of the Vietnam War. 
And Nixon, Nixon is going to go down in history as the person who saved America from this godforsaken war. And I'm going to be remembered as the architect of it, even though I had nothing to do with starting it. Lincoln slowly nodded as if he he knew this story well, as if he had experienced it himself in his own afterlife. You're only creating more suffering for yourself worrying about it, Lincoln said. The world will write its narrative about you after you're gone, and there's there's nothing you can do about it. Yeah, Lincoln spoke those words like he knew. And Johnson thought about uh, a recent interview he had done with Walter Cronkite. He invited him to the ranch, and they had sat in the kitchen together. And, and, and Johnson really wanted to emphasize to Cronkite that he, he had a lot to do with the civil rights movement and its success. And he had passed legislation on, on fair housing and, and enacted a war on poverty. There was a lot of really great stuff he did beyond Vietnam, but that was all they ever talked about. And even as he expressed this, to even as he expressed this to Walter Cronkite, he knew his voice was going to fall on deaf ears, a country of deaf ears. And Lincoln's cold, bony hand rested itself on Johnson's shoulder. And Johnson felt, Johnson looked deep deep into Lincoln's eyes and saw within those sockets and within his eye sockets a deep abyss that he knew he would be entering soon. And then he felt a shooting pain shoot through his shoulder and he collapsed onto the ground. And there was a Secret Service agent there. Uh, watching all this. It's the same Secret Service agent who first relayed this story. And the way he told, tells it is he saw this whole thing unfolding and he wanted to go and intervene, but he couldn't move. He couldn't move his arms. He couldn't move his legs. He was frozen in place. He could do nothing to save Johnson or to help Johnson or to chase away the spirit that had come to visit him. And then as Lincoln's ghost seemed to dissolve into the flickering firelight, he started to be able to move again and he rushed over and he knelt by Johnson and felt his pulse. It was gone. He was no longer breathing. He was dead. And so I share this story as a Halloween leadership story because I think it raises questions about how little control we have over our legacy. You know, leaders often come into very complex situations uh, with a lot of different things that are not of their making and they're saddled with having to try and solve the problem and people create all kinds of narratives around um, what they did right and what they did wrong and ultimately you're not in control of the final narrative because you know you're dead at the end of the day and uh, the people are going to tell the story that that they want to tell. I think um, the Oppenheimer movie is a great example of this. There's a scene in that movie where uh, Oppenheimer, uh, they show Oppenheimer trying to poison a teacher that he didn't like. And Oppenheimer's family, his son, uh, or maybe grandson, has raised concerns about that and saying that didn't really happen. Uh, that should not have been included in the movie, but it's too late now. It's, it's part of the narrative because uh, everybody knows well, because that's the primary way people are finding out right now about Oppenheimer. So um, though there's no role in that back. And uh, as the point that the ghost of Lincoln apparently was trying to make is, is very resonant and true in that context. You're only making yourself suffer more by worrying about trying to control your legacy at the end of the day. All right, for the next segment of the Sense and Signal podcast, uh, Halloween edition, we are going to um, participate in a story that I'm calling the Succubus Leadership Consultant. Um, this is based on a voice message that was left uh, for me by a friend and colleague about his experience with uh, a leadership con uh, consultant who turned out to be a demon. So uh, let's go ahead and listen to the episode, or not the episode, let's go ahead and listen to the, uh, the recording, and then I'll provide reactions as we go through it, and um, 
we'll see what we think of this and if there's anything for us to glean about leadership and sense making through this uh story about um an evil evil uh evil leadership consultant and coach hey dan this is jeff i heard through the grapevine that you were doing a halloween ghost story episode for leaders uh on the next step uh sense and signal podcast so i thought i'd call in and uh share a story with you that's great you know let's face it these are some scary times we're living in right uh, especially to talk about leadership and sense making because there seems to be very little leadership and very little sense left in the world <laughs> gallows humor my friend gallows humor <laughs> Now, I know I might sound like you um, on this phone call, but I want to rest rest assured that this is not you because uh, (laughs) if it was you, you'd remember calling yourself, right? So it's definitely not you. This is Jeff. Um, And the story I'm going to tell is about a leadership consultant and coach who I'm pretty sure is actually a succubus. Hold on. I just want to make sure that people understand what a succubus is. A succubus is a, a demon. Um, they often have black wings, often are, are kind of erotic, right? Um, and they are vampiric in that they suck the life force out of people. You you um, might remember uh, the movie Life Force. It's a horror movie from back in the 80s or 90s. Uh, about these astronauts who go out into space and they find these kind of vampiric creatures who then come back to Earth, primarily London, and terrorize you know terrorize everyone by sucking their life force out of them. They were depicted in the movie as vampires, but I think more accurately, uh, you could say that they are are um, succubi. So that would be an example of what a succubus is. They steal your life force. We had a really strong team for a long time at the company I worked for, which I'm not going to name. But, you know, coming back to the office after the pandemic or what resembled the office after the pandemic with, you know, half the staff working virtually, we really wanted to give them a boost and make them even more agile and dynamic than they already were. So we reached out to a leadership coach and consultant named Rebecca Calloway based on a recommendation from a colleague whose name, strangely, I, I can't remember and who now seems like a freaking dream to me. It's very odd. And, you know, from the moment I met her during the interview, I felt there was something strange about Rebecca. She's one of those people who feels so, seems so sugary and bright that she came off, at least to me, like fake and inhuman. You know, those people who are just so over positive uh, with their, and so over sweetened uh, in their mannerisms and their, their way of talking that the it seems like they're really trying to mask a deep emptiness. Yeah, yeah. Everything was quotes from Simon Sinek and Brene Brown. Why ask why? Be vulnerable. Make leaders, not followers. Blah, 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 blah. But despite my reservations, the rest of the team were so enamored with her, almost like they were caught up in a brain-deadening sugar high that they all voted for her. I was the only holdout. And she began meeting uh, one-on-one with each of our team members the following week. And you know what? I have to admit, at first... She seemed great. Her meetings with each team member produced tangible results right away. The team, each team member expressed a whole new, whole new levels of energy and enthusiasm for their work. They they said they found new meaning and purpose to their jobs. And, And, you know, based on this tidal wave of fresh energy and almost manic commitment to collaboration, team building, agile methods, they seem poised to, uh, to, make a, a lot of, to iterate toward a lot of profound innovations, Dan. And at this point, I even felt my doubts about Rebecca Calloway begin to fade. Uh, I feel a twist coming. <laughs> but soon, Dan, I started to notice something disturbing. Ah, there, see, there it is. One by one, each team member started to fade away. That's the only way I can describe it. They were healthy and vibrant one moment, and then slowly they began to decline. Their bodies became emaciated, and their once vibrant eyes turned dull and foggy. 
then usually they just disappeared, vanished like a kid on a 1980s milk carton. Except for one of our accountants, Tony Stein. We found him at his desk, so drained of his life force that he turned into an ashen corpse that collapsed into dust as soon as I touched it. Oh, you touched him? Oh, I hope they have some so hand sanitizer around. To confront this consultant about what she was doing to our team. And I found her in my boss's office consulting him on more than his business maneuvers, if you catch my drift. No, I don't catch your drift, Jeff. I what told are you her she about? was destroying <laughs> our team by filling them with so much hollow, sugary drivel. Yes, initially they flew to great heights by her empty words, uh, due to her empty words, but. Then came the candy crash, and in this case, these crashes drained every ounce of life out of everybody. You, you, I told her, you're creating a toxic workplace, I yelled. I screamed, oh. where everybody was working themselves to death. You should not scream. That could be an HR issue. And the succubus leadership consultant climbed off of my boss, who was now a pile of brittle ash, much like the accountant Tony Stein. And she expanded her black wings, exposed her glistening fangs, and looked at me with the deadest eyes I've ever seen. Oh, wow. I don't think you have to worry about HR. Why are you doing this? I asked. Because it's easy, she said. Well, that's true. And then she flew at me. So I ran down the empty halls of our firm while this winged, demonic leadership coach followed me, Dan, following me down all these empty halls, flying after me, quoting the most sugary and bland leadership quotes I have ever heard. Fulfillment comes when we live our lives with a purpose. When we know why we do, why what we do, everything falls into place. Clear is kind, unclear is unkind. As she recited these demonic leadership quotes, I felt myself become more energized, Dan, like I had superhuman powers. It was just welling up inside me, and it was terrifying. I felt like I could do anything, and she followed me up to the roof of the building, continuing to chant these sugary leadership quotes to me with even more ferocity while she flashed her glistening teeth at me. You can do anything you want with a growth mindset, she yelled. Managers do things right. Leaders do th the right thing. A leader is one who knows the right the way, goes the way, and shows the way. All these mantras. And then she cornered me on the ledge of the building, Dan. There was nothing I could do. She was hovering above me in her pantsuit with her black wings flapping in the night sky. I knew she was trying to fill me up with so much leadership pep talk that I was going to explode if I heard any more. So feeling drunkenly overconfident on her di uh, sugary diatribe, I leapt off the roof to try and escape her empty leadership quotes. Luckily, we only work on a one-story building, so the fall wasn't that bad, and I landed in a dumpster and passed out. Later in the day, when, or the next morning, when some homeless guy fished me out of the dumpster, I wondered if what I was, had experienced was just a strange dream. So I went back to the building looking for my colleagues. But in each office cubicle I passed, the only thing I found was a pile of sugary ash in each swivel chair. So that's my ghost story, Dan. Use it if you want. Wow. Oh, well, we're using it, Jeff. We're using it. That was certainly one evil um, leadership coach and consultant. Uh, <laughs> wow. Well, Jeff, thank you for sharing that. I think that is brings up a lot of good leadership lessons for us, especially around the sugary uh, sugary um, type of leadership training that's often offered these days where it's all about feel-good stuff and pep talks. And sometimes it doesn't get to the real root of the problems or challenges organizations are facing because it's often involving systems thinking and complexity and a lot of other things. And you can only have so many feel-good mantras um, 
you know, before you start to get energy from that, before you start to realize that that might not be the only thing that I need. Um, Yeah, positivity and and optimism are all good things and having empathy and feeling good about the work you do and having purpose, all really important. But there are other aspects and a lot of harder questions to answer when you're in a leadership position too and you're leading teams as well, um, that sometimes the saccharine, uh, sugary, sugar-coated leadership coaching uh, doesn't always help with. And uh, sometimes, like in this case, it's it's about to- creating, it actually can create a toxic work environment where um, there's this actually thing called toxic transformational leadership, right? Where you're doing all these relational things to build relationships with employees and pushing them to do more. And they do, they invest more, they put more of their time and labor into things and work later hours and on weekends, and then find themselves burnt out. You've sucked all the energy out of them, just like this uh, succubus consultant. So uh, something to be uh, considerate about, uh, considerate of. And uh, Jeff, thank you for sharing your voice message and your your, uh, uh, ghost story. So our next and final uh, ghost story of this Sense and Signal episode is the CEO and the egregore. And um, so some context to this, uh, this story comes out of an interview Joda and I did with an author a couple months ago. We interviewed him for the podcast about a new book that he was writing about a CEO he claims is deeply involved in the occult. And um, shortly after we did the interview, he disappeared, vanished. And his uh, family said that, uh, contacted us and said, can you please not release that episode? He's missing. We've been told by people that things might get worse for him if you release that episode. So, of course, we complied. We're a small podcast. Nobody listens to us. So we, we shelved the podcast. And um, But I felt like at the same time for this Halloween episode, I should share some of what he told us Um just so it's on the record, because it might impact you, it might impact me, it definitely might impact the rest of the world if what they, what this writer claims um, to be true is true. So he had been told, tell, he had told us that he's been working on a book, um, again, about a major CEO for a company, and I'm not going to say what CEO it is or what their initials are, EM. And I'm not going to share what country they're from, South Africa. And I'm not going to talk about any of the companies they work, they, they lead. Ex- um, so you, you're not going to pry all that stuff out of me. And there, there could be legal consequences if I um, provide that information. Again, I don't want to get this, this writer in trouble. Now, according to this author, um, this idiosyncratic CEO has, again, has some deep, deep ties to the occult. And he has been experimenting creating an egregore with through social media. Now, what's an egregore, you ask? Well, an egregore is an esoteric concept. It comes from the occult and witchcraft and magic. Um, and it describes uh, a bodiless entity um, that people connect to and create with their minds by channeling their thoughts collectively into this entity. A metaphor that we could probably relate to is cloud computing. So if we had like a cloud in the sky of of information and we were all plugged into it, sending information up into it, and it was sending information back down into us, we would be creating like a tech version of egregore. Uh, but this is really an occult, mystical version of that thing. And, and so it's a way to control large groups of people because the egregore, as much as you are contributing to egregore, eventually it's contributing to you and it becomes like this feedback loop. So it's very cultish in its nature as well. So the author also wanted to make a, made, made a big, we spent a substantial portion of our interview talking about the relationship between that and corporations. Because corporations are a group of people who uh, create a, um, a bodiless entity uh, that's surrounded by certain ideas like missions and values and stuff like that. Uh, just like an egregore does, except it's more of a legal thing. It's like a legal designation about this group of people who are creating this collective thing. Um, 
But there are overlapping aspects to these two things. And the author said that this CEO has actually turned many of his corporations or many of his businesses into egregores, blending the corporate side and the occultish side. And I'm, you know, I'm not going to talk about any of his other businesses, Tesla or, you know, um, any of his, any of his companies, SpaceX. Um, so don't, again, don't ask me uh, about that. So during the investigation, the author said that he interviewed several executives for the CEO and that it has become a regular practice for them to go on the top of the office buildings that they inhabit late at night in black robes and red robes and conduct these kind of Sabbaths or rituals or something or other where they try to connect to this egregore and, and have influence over it. That what they ultimately want, what they ultimately want to do through social media is to create a type of egregore that many people are connected to that perceives the world to be such a chaotic and abysmal place, a place with such a full of such where there is such lack of hope, where there is no hope, there's an absence of hope. Uh, in the future that people give up, give up on this planet and decide to sign up for a space mission to Mars. And he's really hoping that he can do that through communicating through social media. Now, I questioned the writer about this and whether or not the CEO really had the power to influence millions of people potentially yeah potentially billions of people to want to leave this planet this oxygen filled with oxygen because we're oxygen breathing people to go to a carbon dioxide based planet and he said we are just at the beginning this is just getting started uh, you're going to see much more just uh, atomization and a breakdown in society if this ceo has his way and so um being a leadership and sense making podcast, I had to ask, well, how how is he doing that? When they go up on the roofs uh, of these corporate buildings and start performing these rituals, what, what do they look like? And he says it really involves them doing a lot of visualization, meditating and visualizing and channeling their visions into this egregore. You know, visions of decay and chaos and how can we fuel the military industrial complex? How can we fuel the culture wars? How can we fuel all these divisions so we can drive people apart and make it seem like this worth is no longer inhabiting and to leave all this, this oxygen rich atmosphere and, and flee to a carbon dioxide based atmosphere. And he said they all, they do this, they do this meditation and channeling and visualization all to the music of Ziggy Stardust, which was weird and creepy, but that's what they do. And I, then I was like, well, how, how are they going to communicate uh, all these ideas out to the people? It's, uh, how are they going to connect to them? And he said, it's very simple. It's, mo it's the most simple thing. It's right in front of you all the time that they're communicating this, this discord to you. It's through memes, little memes passing here and there and everywhere. Memes, 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 everywhere with subliminal messages reprogramming your minds until you don't even know that you've changed into a complete monster and you're ready to tear out the throat of anybody who disagrees with you, rip out their brains and eat their brains and consume their brains. And the whole world's going to go to complete chaos until until everyone agrees this planet is no longer worth saving we all need to go to mars and that's just what they're gonna do and then and then i asked okay well that sounds pretty extreme that that's gonna happen um but what does the ceo get out of it and he's like oh it's very simple at the end of the day the ceo is going to be driving around the world in his electric self-driving car watching as nature reclaims the highways and parking lots and strip malls and all this animal life comes back into the world and he's going to point it all out to his robot wife and cyborg children and say i created this well, it, was, it was a fascinating interview i i 
I kind of thought at the time that the author was kind of cracked and making a lot of this stuff up, but you know, that's what he told us. I thought the interview went well overall. And then a couple days later, he emailed, asked us to not publish the episode, warned us that some corporate goons were going to be snooping around and that we'd uh, better be careful because as he said, the algorithm has combined with the egregore and and it knew what we were talking about. It knew about the episode and that it was going to come after us uh, if we said anything about it. And um, just for my own protection, I didn't really uh, delete his interview. I have it hidden away somewhere. So if something does happen to me, um, you know where to go looking for it. Uh, or you might, I'll, I'll have some clues uh, littered around the internet that you can search for to find uh, where that interview episode went. So, um, yeah. So that is the end of our Sense and Signal Halloween episode. I hope you enjoyed some of these horrific, spooky tales about leadership and sense making. And uh, tune in next week when we will come back at you with another, another scintillating episode where we tackle all things leadership and sense making on the Sense and Signal podcast. Take care, everybody. Mm-hmm.